Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for this kind invitation to come back to my old uh, stalking grounds. Um, I was sponsored for ordination by this Diocese of Litchfield and uh, I've always been very, very grateful. I have enormously fond memories of Bishop Keith Sutton who was so supportive to me as an ordinand and so it's great to be here and to travel here this morning in the car uh, was like a a trail through my childhood. All these places are Sheriff Hales. <laughs> it suddenly came back to me from a boy when I used to live near Newport. So um, it, it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I was at a conference uh, not too long ago where the speaker began by saying, um, as I don't know many of you here, I asked for a list of you all broken down by age and by sex. And then he said, but as I look out at you now, I can see that most of you have been broken down by age and by sex. <laughs> well, I would never be so rude. Uh, however, uh, well, um, I always take comfort at this stage in the proceedings with those wonderful words of Quentin Crisp that if at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. <laughs> And I'm here, and I hope I'm not going to fail because I feel so uh, strongly about this, but I'm, I'm here to talk about uh, three things that fire me up. Uh, poetry, faith, and preaching. And uh, I think all those uh, things are absolutely inseparable, and I'm going to try and tell you why uh, throughout this day. Um, the, the sort of uh, scheme is that in this first session I'm going to talk about why poetry, what's so great about it, and I, I can imagine most of, well, a lot of you will be sitting there thinking it's not a word you're terribly comfortable with, so we're going to look at that. And then I'm going to ask, in the middle of the day, um, how can we use poetry, uh, why is it important to preachers and people of faith, and then uh, I'll come at the end, look at the whole idea of what we're doing with language as, uh, as people in our vocation. So that's what I'm going to try and do, and um, uh, we'll see how it goes. And there's plenty of opportunity, I hope, for people to ask questions. But also, I've brought um, for each of you uh, a little um, pamphlet, which I'm going to leave by the door for when you come into the next session. So if you'd like to take one. I've put a few poems here, and we're going to look at uh, one or two of them. Uh, and see how that goes. When I say I'm, I want to talk about preaching, uh, I just want to be clear that I, preaching for me, a sermon is not a text. Okay? A sermon is an event. So if you think your sermon is all about a script, no, that's, that's part of it, but a, a sermon is an event. So it's very nice that, you know, a fantastic book of my sermons is available at the back, <laughs> but actually the event's passed, and there's something slightly dead about a printed sermon, or there should be. So it's all about uh, the body, it's about the language, which is what we're going to look at, it's, it's about the tone, it's not about the script, and that's why I find preaching a, a very exciting venture and adventure. Anyway, let's start with poetry. Um, I do know at the beginning of this day that uh, the word poetry is scary for a lot of people because it has really bad memories of boredom or humiliation at school 
as you try to understand or recite a poem. And then sometimes maybe you try to come back to poetry in later life, uh, but you don't quite know where to start. You go into Waterstones, there's all these weird-looking books, and you actually pick up a, a book of poems and, and you suddenly realise you don't get many words for your money. And uh, there's, a, there's a hell of a lot of space going on here. <clears throat> and uh, you might have a quick read as you're standing there and it doesn't make much sense, so you close it and, well, you go back to EastEnders, basically. And uh, there is actually a word uh, uh, called metrophobia, the fear of poetry. It's not the fear of the underground. It's the fear of poetry, metrophobia. Or, if you remember, dear old Blackadder, uh, this gets nearer to the truth for some people, Baldrick, he once said, I'd rather French kiss a skunk than have to read your poems. <laughs> so I do know about this, and I hear a, a lot about people complaining about the difficulty of poetry, and we'll, we'll think that through a bit later. But I do remember the first day that I suddenly realised I needed more poetry in my life. I was a curate, I was ordained at 24, and I was serving in the church at St John's Wood in London, next to Lord's Cricket Ground. And as I always used to say to taxi drivers, I'm in the church, not on the Lord's side. <laughs> and they knew where to drop me off. So I was in St John's Wood, and uh, Wendy Cope, uh, a poet who now lives in Ely and a friend of mine now, but I didn't know her at the time. She was giving a, a poetry reading in a local school and I went along. And I was brought up by my uh, grandmother, uh, who, by the way, is still alive and is 100 in May. And uh, I popped in to see her on the way here. She was by the way, she FaceTimed me this morning to make sure I hadn't forgotten I was speaking to you. <laughs> <laughs> um... So I was brought up by my grandparents, my grandmother very important, and, and um, Wendy Cope suddenly read a poem towards the end of the reading about her grandmother. So my ears, you know, pricked up, and um, here's the poem. It's called Names. She was Eliza for a few weeks when she was a baby. Eliza Lily. Soon it changed to Lil. Later, she was Miss Stewart in the baker's shop, and then my love, my darling, mother. Widowed at 30, she went back to work as Mrs. Hand. Her daughter grew up, married and gave birth. Now, she was Nana. Everybody calls me Nana she would say to visitors. And so they did. Friends, tradesmen, the doctor. In the geriatric ward, they used the patients' Christian names. Lil, we said, or Nana. But it wasn't in her file. And for those last bewildered weeks, she was Eliza once again. Mm. 
I listened to those few simple lines that captured the fragile life cycle of a woman I think you already are feeling rather tender towards after just 107 words. And I found I was crying. By the way, preachers out there, memo to self, you can do extraordinary things with just 107 words. <laughs> you do not need 107 points on an overhead projector, nor do you need 107 minutes. 107 words was all I used with you just now. Just saying. Now, not all poems, of course, make you cry. Far from it. But what became clear to me, I think, that day and since then, is that when we're talking about poetry, whatever we're talking about, we're talking about some sort of soul language. It's a way of crafting words that distills our experience into what feels like some purer truth. It's the bright blue flame at the top of the Bunsen burner. It's that point. Uh, and this is why I think um, when the Irish poet, Michael Longley, uh, w when he was asked, as many artists of course are, you know, where does all your art come from? Somebody said to Michael Longley, where do you get all your poems from? Where? And he said, if I knew where poems came from, I'd go and live there. There is a sense in which it, it's a sort of homeland, uh, invitational uh, aspect to poetry. And when I called that book that Paul kindly mentioned for five pounds I gave him to mention my book, um, <laughs> uh, The Splash of Words, I called it The Splash of Words because you know, if you think of the, of the lake that you throw the pebble into, there's that initial splash and then the ripples begin to do their work out to the shore. That's what a poem does. You get that initial splash. So when I finished reading that Wendy Cope poem, the silence in this room was very poignant. <laughs> that was the splash of words. And then the ripples. The poem begins doing its work in you. It probably still is. It probably might be when you're driving back home. The poem, as it were, never stops. It can only be abandoned. It's still doing its work. And it's starting to shift some of your sands, some of your hard stones. They're being shifted by these ripples from the poem. And if, like me, you think theology is rather similar to a sort of beachcombing exercise, you know, you're picking up bits and pieces here and there and you decide to take home some of them, then I think the work of a poem brings onto your shore what you might want to cherish and take home. And the way I now put this is that a good poem makes something unforeseen become indispensable. So you didn't see this coming. At the end of that poem, it was unforeseen. And now it's indispensable. I don't want to lose that moment. How would it be if that was how a sermon had its effect on Sunday? Something unforeseen because of you has now become indispensable to those people. 
Now, in the church, we often uh, think we're rather good with words uh, because we've got the authorised version of the Bible and we've got the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, but, of course, we're not always good with words. Um, when I was a uh, bishop's chaplain, we used to go around and, and take all the newsletters and spot all the typos, you know. <laughs> Things like, um, this being Easter Sunday, we've asked Mrs Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this rather large... Uh, gloomy, fluorescent green poster in North London. We arrived to take a service and it said uh, it was asking all the shoppers passing by tired of sin? Then come in. <laughs> uh, to which somebody had scrawled on the bottom, but if not telephone 642. <laughs> so we're not always as good with words as we like to think we are, I think. So we do need refresher courses. We need to think about language, and I'm going to argue later on, language is sacramental. I think if you're pouring water into the font to get ready for baptism, and if you're getting your bread and wine ready, what are you doing with your language? How are you preparing your language ready for this communion, which is what language is? It's a communion between me and you at the moment. Um, so I don't need to tell people of faith, I hope, that language matters. And whereas we can be very obsessed in the Church of England always about being relevant, I want to ask what might it be not to strive so much for relevance as resonance. Mm. They're very different things. Relevance is about the passing now. And, and, and that can be really important. It would be a very odd sermon if you don't mention Ukraine. Because that's where everybody's brains are. So you've got to, you've got to pick that up. But resonance is about the deeper human things that never disappear. They're always there. And that's where the gospel's homeland is. So resonance as well as relevance. And, and thinking through the difference between the two is important. Now, as I told you, um, I'm uh, originally from Shropshire, and uh, one of the little things I say in the book, uh, so forgive me if you've read it, if not, what a treat you've got in store. Um, uh, but I, I tell the story at the, at the bottom of my grandmother's garden. Uh, there was a lovely old shepherd called Tom, and uh, he was well in his 80s when I was having a conversation with him and um, he, uh, he, he was carrying one day a, his, bishop, his, I was going to say bishop's crook, his um, shepherd's crook. And I joked with him. I said, oh, my boss has one of those. <laughs> and I said, do you really use it to get in the lambs and all that? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, I'll tell you what this is really good for. He said, Mark, he said, I stick it into the ground and I, get, I hold on to it. And then I can keep myself so still that the sheep eventually learn to trust me a bit. I've been desperate to preach at the consecration of a bishop <laughs> ever since he gave me that sermon. What would it be, and, and it's not just bishops because they're all easy to have a go at them, but we've all been handed a pastoral staff by our authority in ministry. What would it be not to use that to clunk around the place and use authority, but to, to stick it into the humus, which is the root of the word humility, 
so that you could be so centred and still that you might be trustworthy. That's a good vocation for a bishop. It's a good vocation for you, me. What sort of language is going to come out of that place? That seems to me to be the question. It's not going to be the sort of language that we're being bombarded with too much at the moment. It's going to be of a different type. And I'm going to be telling you I think it's going to be poetic. Um, let's just go back to that problem of poetry, though, uh, because by now some of you might be saying, OK, I can see where this is going, uh, but I'm still stuck on that poetry thing. I just don't get it. Uh, and what I say, well... <laughs> Imagine you were going on holiday, because you can do that now, apparently. You can still you know, actually get away. <laughs> Imagine you were going to, I don't know, Belgium. And uh, what do you do before you go to Belgium? Well, you buy you know, maybe a, a guidebook, or you go online and you look up Bruges or wherever you go. And uh, you look up the flea markets or the restaurants or whatever you know, museums that you're interested in, and you do your bit of research and... The thing is that as soon as you get there, you know that at some point you're going to get lost. And that's all part of the fun of being on holiday. Because you, you're not in control in quite the same way as you usually are. And you become a bit of a different person because of that. And, oh, I can't read that sign. <laughs> and, oh, why is the Belgian famous statue of a little boy peeing in a fountain. That's weird. And all these things don't add up, but of course that's why they are wonderfully refreshing as a holiday. Now, what would it be like to imagine uh, reading poetry in the same sort of mindset as that? So, yes, you can buy your guidebooks. Yes, you can um, listen to people like me talking about it but actually at the end of the day you've got to just go for it and yes you are going to find it difficult you are going to get a bit lost occasionally but stick with it stick around and it will begin to make some sort of sense and it will be refreshing but you do have to make that commitment you've got to buy the ticket <laughs> you've got to get on the plane um, but it will be quite a journey I promise you it will be. But you've got to have that patience that you have when you're standing in the queue for a, a ticket in a, in a museum in Belgium. And the thing that you've got to remember about poetry is it's language, but not as we know it. Okay, this is language, but not as we usually use it. And here's the connection with spirituality. The thing that poetry reminds you of constantly is that difficulty is important. We spend a lot of our lives avoiding it, and I understand why we do that. But actually, if you look back at your lives, the most difficult parts of your life were probably the most important. Those were the thing times where things shifted, where you became a, a different person maybe, or learned different things that you needed to learn, and, and so on. The difficult is important spiritually, and that's why poems are difficult, because they're trying to shift you into a new place, and 
let me tell you, you don't want to be shifted. One of the greatest sermons I ever heard in St. Paul's Cathedral was on the feast of John the Baptist. And the preacher got up after hearing the gospel about John telling everybody to metanoia and change their lives. <clears throat> and uh, he said, can you imagine St. Paul's Cathedral? Okay, there was 900 people there. And he said, uh, before I begin, he said, could I, could I just ask you all to, um, to move seats, please? <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to try that one. <laughs> and of course, everybody went, <laughs> uh, And he said, no, 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 I mean it. Could you please all just move seats? Well, you can imagine. It was like, you know, elephants in the shade, you know, lumbering towards new waters. It took about five minutes for somebody actually to get up uh, and move. And then the dean felt he had to, to show leadership. And so everybody uh, gradually, and he just, he just stayed there, waiting for it to happen. And anyway, it all settled down. He said, you know, if that's what it takes for you just to change seats, how the hell are you going to change your life? Well, <laughs> it's a very good sermon on John the Baptist, I thought, actually. <laughs> um, you can only use it once, however. <laughs> but that's the power of words, but, but it's also, it was the point about the difficulty. And my theology, if I try to sum it up, is something like this, that God has given you a great gift, it's called your being. And you're asked to give a gift back for that, and it's called your becoming. Who you become with the being that you've been gifted with. It's a frightening thought what you've made of that project <laughs> sometimes, um, and a very good way into wondering how you're doing is to say to yourself, when other people are with me, who do they become? What do, I, what, what do I make people when they're with me? Are they intimidated? Are they enlightened? What, what's going on? So that, that project of human becoming, for me, is the great gift. Now, in order to become, we need to change and therefore we need difficulty because we need prompting, we need dislocating out of our habits uh, and often needing to be lifted out of our self-obsessions and that's why poetic language is often difficult because it's got some really important work to do in you and you have to stick with it as I said. Now here's a little exercise, um, if I said to you now here is the news. You'd all sit up waiting to hear, oh, the news of the day, what's going on in Ukraine? What the hell's Putin said today? Um, what's Boris's hair looking like? All those sorts of things that, you know, you, you, six o'clock is getting you prepared for. And you tune your ears in, don't you, for those, for those facts. You're, you're, you're coming, the facts are going to come and you're going to tune in for them. Now, what instead of that I said... Once upon a time. How would you tune in your ears then? You'd be waiting for truth, but now it's going to come in the form of a story. And we like stories because they convey truth, but they don't conclude it for us. They don't define it. They leave it to us. So we like to hear them again and again, as you know, children love stories. But you tune in your ears ready to hear truth coming at you in a different form other than the news. 
Okay, so we, we know that we can tune in differently to truth. When somebody walks into a church, how have they got their ears tuned? Here is the news. Once upon a time, something else. What, what's going on? My guess is that because we've all become Google fiends, uh, we've all got our fact ears fixed. We're, we're out for literalisms. And the problem is that when you walk into a church, on my understanding, you've walked into a poem. This is poetry in motion. And anybody who's got their news ears fixed is going to be really frustrated by this because actually what's coming at them is poetry. And you don't believe me? Well, let's just think what happens when you go into a church. I don't know whether what sort of your church is, but my guess is it's going to start quite quickly with standing up and singing a poem. We call it a hymn or a worship song. It's a poem set to music. And then we're probably going to hear a song, which, as we've just heard, is an old poem. And then at some point, the minister of, is going to get up, and the body might even become poetic. So if it's a high church priest saying mass, or if it's an HTB person, <laughs> the body's gone into the vocative. It, it's poetic motion. If uh, you listen and you tune into the words of the, of the uh, prayers, these are all illusions, metaphors, analogies. What else have we got when it comes to God? Our language is having to go to the gym. It's becoming acrobatic to try and catch up with the divine mystery. So all those words are poetic. Uh, this is poetry in motion, but if you've come with your here is the news ears on, then people are going to easily dismiss it or just wonder what the hell they've walked into. So they're going to need help to understand the nature of our worship and our language. And um, as St. Ambrose said, uh, it did not please God to save the world through logic. Okay. We, we are, we're more than that. In fact, Faith and God are so important, we are not being literalistic. Things are sometimes so important, literalisms let you down. I'll, I'll come back to that. So you get all this um, uh, poetic language, and, and why is that? Well, I would say that poetry is the language of love. Now, as I look out at you now, one or two of you might be in love uh, with someone. I can see one or two flushed faces. Maybe. <laughs> I once said that, actually, and the, the woman on the front row said, no, it's my time of life, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, think about what you do when you're in love with someone and you try to express it. The last thing you become is a literalist. You are writing those really embarrassing verses that you're sending in your Valentine's card. Uh, you are trying to find any words which are, are trying to do some justice to this great big surge of affection and love that's overtaken you when you fall in love. Now, if poetry is the language of love, then it must be the language of the church. Love God, love your neighbour as yourself. 
So if the school, if, if the church, and this is what I believe church is, is a school for love. It's a school where we're learning slowly what it means to love God, to love my neighbour and to love myself. If it is a school for, for love learning, then our language is going to be the language of love, which is poetic. And that is why the language of faith, as we're scurrying around to trying to do justice with our words and the truth of God, you know, as I said, we, we are not just going to be literalistic. And if I wanted to be a little bit more um, provocative, and you can come back on me uh, with this, fundamentalism is to Christianity what paint-by-numbers is to art. <laughs> fundamentalism is not embracing the great richness that the Christian faith is trying to bring to every level of human being and becoming. We could come back to that. Now you might be thinking, mm, this is all a little bit Radio 4, you know, I wandered lonely as a canon. You know, so. <laughs> uh, okay, but I would remind you that poetry is being used in all the places that matter where human life is really on the edge. So it's, they'll be used in the hospices, in hospitals, at weddings, in youth custody centres, in schools. Poetry is, is the language of becoming and of learning. Uh, and so it's not just you know, for elite people who like to talk about it in Cambridge. It's, it's doing its work in many, many places. Um, but most importantly for us today, it's there in all the great world faiths. So right from the beginning in Hinduism, the Vedas are uh, in effect thousands of poems. The Bhagavad Gita, the Song of God, composed is in verse. The classic Tao from China, 6th century BC, is uh, poetic. The Hebrew Bible, as we've just been hearing, full of poetic exploration. The Psalms, of course. The noble language of Job. The imagery of the Song of Songs. The riddles of the Proverbs. The prophets. If you want to be a good prophet, you're not going to be a literalist. Um, listen to Martin Luther King. He was not a literalist. Listen to the poetry of what he was saying. He never once said, uh, you know, I have a nightmare. He said, I have a dream. Then he invited you into it. And that's what the prophets do. I'll come back to the Gospels in one moment, but look at the Quran, where God is the poetic author of a text so beautiful that Muslim people have developed a chant for reciting it. And so you get the great um, key statement of Islam, uh, the Shahada, Confession of Faith. Just listen to it in the in Arabic transliteration. La ilaha illa Allah. It's, it's poetic. It's playing with those long consonants uh, and, the, and the open vowels, giving this rhythm that is so important that it becomes caught up with your own life. Uh, and all these spiritual traditions, truth is expressed through poetry for the faithful. It isn't a better way of saying something, it's how you say something for a person of faith. Um, and by the way, 
when I say it's caught up with your being, we forget the physicality of poetry. So, um, can people hear me if I... W no, no, you can't. I'll stay here. <laughs> um, so, if you've got a rhythm going on in you right now as you sit down. You know what it is. It's going on in you. That's good. If I want to be posh, that's called an iamb in poetry. It's a short, long. Titum, titum, titum. Take a deep breath. <clears throat> How many titums can you get in it? Titum, 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 titum. Five. Five iams. Iambic pentameter. The main way of, uh, the main line of English language poetry. Shall I, comp uh, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Titum, 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 titum. It's caught up with your heartbeat and your breath. There's nothing more homeland physicality than a good uh, poem. It's caught up with you and your being. And that's why when I visit people uh, in hospital, the things that they often remember are the poems they learnt at school. Mm -hmm. It's still in their bodies, literally there. So let's not forget the physicality of it. And also, we, we know that meaning is caught up with sound, so if you suddenly say to somebody, sit down, tito, sit down, um, it's different from sort of, you know, uh, if you were trying to say, slow down, tt, you know, the meaning and, and the sound are often caught up. And we heard it, by the way, George Herbert, who was very, very attuned to that. You can hear it in that poem that we heard in the... Uh, in the service just now, when it begins, uh, Love bade me welcome, dum, 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 dum. Yet my soul drew back, dum. You can feel the heaviness. Guilty of dust and sin, but quick-eyed love, quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack. It, it, you can just hear the, the elongations of the word, and, and Herbert had a great word, uh, an ear for how meaning and sound uh, got, got caught up together. I could go on about that poem for about eight hours, so I'll stop now. <laughs> um, so, what I'm trying to say is also in the Christian Gospels, which are obviously not so poetic unless you study them closely, you then see the artistry of the evangelists. And, of course, you come across Jesus, who um, would not have scored um, A in a homiletics class, it seems to me, uh, B minus, probably, because uh, everybody always kept asking privately what the hell he meant. <laughs> and uh, let's just remind ourselves, the, the Good Samaritan never existed, uh, prodigal son never existed. There was no Lazarus at the gate. No woman ever lost a coin. Jesus made them up. How about that? Jesus made them up. He was a poet. He was persistently figurative, which is why people kept asking him to spell it out. But he refused. He kept telling more parables. And that's why we keep telling them now, because we still haven't quite got round to working out what they all mean. <laughs> Um, for that reason, the Christian creed, which I say every night at evensong uh, at 
Tenet College, uh, says that, and you'll hear it in the Apostles' Creed, of course, that Jesus was born, suffered, died, and rose again. But of course, there was something in between. <laughs> he taught. No mention of it. That's interesting. Maybe it would be just too difficult to paraphrase what he said in a little creedal statement. How would you be even begin to do that when he was persistently figurative and poetic? So, when he does teach, what does he say often at the end of a parable? Do you remember what he says? If, if you've got you've got ears to hear. Could he mean, have you switched, switched them on in the right way? This isn't the news, this is the good news. And that's different. So I think God's a poet. And Christ, who for me is the body language of God, was voicing the good news in this figurative poetic manner, which was frustrating, to, but also beguiling and invitation. And uh, my great friend Padre Cotuma always says, whatever Jesus of Nazareth's death means, it doesn't mean something that you can ever write on a fridge magnet. <coughs> that, that bumper sticker theology that wants us to be quick in our clarity and define everything so quickly and easily Avoid it. it. It will not be truthful. So, let me finish, because it's coffee time. Um, what does poetry have to do with my life, my discipleship, my faith? As I said, I think it is about this human becoming. Put it another way, I believe God loves us just as we are. I really believe that. God loves you just as you are, but God loves you so much, God doesn't want you to stay like that. Okay? So we need a, a language that is helping us endlessly become and transform. So we don't want from preachers endless information, because actually a sermon is about human formation. Formation not so much information. That doesn't mean people aren't hungry to know a bit more. I think there's a huge hunger for that. But ultimately, you're not there to give a lecture. You're helping them become more like Christ. That's what the church is here for. It is not there, I don't think, to, to answer everybody's questions. It might be there to question their answers. And that's what poems often do. We need a language that enlarges the heart, the mind, the humane. And as R.S. Thomas said, and it, you'll see it's a title that I, I, I nicked it for a title of a book. He said, poetry is what enters the intellect by way of the heart. So it gets here, but it's got a bit of a journey to do before it gets there. And I think that's what we're doing as preachers. We're trying to reach their minds by way of their hearts. And if you hear a sermon that's only speaking to one of them, you'll get a bit restless. Because <laughs> that's not you. You have both. So when we approach God, 
the last thing we should be is prosaic. Okay, I want you to be poetic. And we'll look after.